It's our 50th year. We are engaged in our 50th year anniversary. Our Happy birth. 50th. That's right. Thank you. Thank <laughs> you. Our birth was in the Occupational Safety and Health Act of 1970. And that act is the statutory beginning of NIOSH. It's the act in which NIOSH was established. You're listening to What's Work Got to Do With It, your go-to resource on all things workplace safety, health, and well-being. This podcast series invites you into the conversation as we discuss how our workplace conditions like work hours, occupational stress, job safety, and other issues affect our lives at work and at home. We go into the science behind it all and talk about what we can do to reduce work-related risk and promote well-being. Thanks for joining us. This podcast is a production of the Oregon Institute of Occupation Health Sciences and Oregon Healthy Workforce Center and is produced by myself, Helen Shuckers, Nicole Guilfoy, Sam Greenspan, and Anjali Rubbish Today we are joined by guest Dr. John Howard, the director of NIOSH. He'll dive into the history and talk more about the agency and its roles in the lives of working people. This year, we're celebrating the National Institute for Occupational Safety and Health, NIOSH's 50th anniversary. Since April 28, 1971, NIOSH has funded research, education, and resources in occupational safety and health. Congress passed the Occupational Safety and Health Act of 1970 that created NIOSH to assure so far as possible every working person in the nation access to safe and healthy working conditions. Dr. John Howard is the director of the National Institute for Occupational Safety and Health and the administrator of the World Trade Center Health Program in the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services. Dr. Howard was first appointed NIOSH director in 2002 during the George W. Bush administration and served in that position until 2008. In 2009, Dr. Howard worked as a consultant with the U.S. Afghanistan Health Initiative In September of 2009, Dr. Howard was again appointed NIOSH director and was reappointed for a third six-year term in 2015. Prior to his appointments as NIOSH director and WTC Health Program Administrator, Dr. Howard served as Chief of the Division of Occupational Safety and Health in the state of California's Labor and Workforce Development Agency from 1991 through 2002. Dr. Howard earned a Doctor of Medicine from Loyola University of Chicago a Master of Public Health from the Harvard University School of Public Health, a Doctor of Law from the University of California at Los Angeles, and a Master of Law in Administrative Law and Economic Regulation, and also a Master of Business Administration and Healthcare Management, both degrees from the George Washington University in Washington, D.C. Dr. Howard is a board certified in internal medicine and occupational medicine. He's admitted to the practice of medicine and law in the state of California and in the District of Columbia, and he is a member of the U.S. Supreme Court Bar. He has written numerous articles on occupational health policy and law. Dr. Howard, thank you so much for joining us today. It's a pleasure for me to be here with you all. So a note to our listeners, as always, we publish information about our guest on the website. And looking at your background, uh, you know, you have degrees in medicine and law and business, and this is your third term as NIOSH director and having been through some really landmark events. So I guess maybe prolific isn't quite the word to capture it all, <laughs> but. Uh, no, I think, I think perpetual student maybe is closer. <laughs> That's good, perpetual student. So moving into just a reflection of this past year, 
it has been quite an experience right for everyone of course but i would imagine especially for you in your role leading niosh through the pandemic and its impact on the workforce so as we open this episode i hope it's okay to ask how are you doing you know pretty good uh, i think as you say it has been quite the year throughout 2020 you know what i think is very interesting to reflect on is that NIOSH primarily does uh, issues of the workplace that involve chemical hazards, uh, physical hazards. Rarely do we uh, get involved in biologic hazards. And this past year, we have done nothing else but get involved in biologic hazards. Now, NIOSH, as everybody knows, approves, uh, certifies respirators. Respirators are a way for healthcare workers and others to protect themselves from the, a respiratory virus like SARS coronavirus 2. So, in that sense, probably the leading edge of NIOSH during the COVID 19 pandemic has been our respirator approval processing, which is uh, in our National Personal Protective Technology Lab, which is located in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. Folks who have worked in that uh, laboratory have been 24-7 now for over 15 months. Uh, so that has been probably the, the part of NIOSH that has worked uh, more often and uh, engaged in more uh, work uh, during the pandemic. Another part of NIOSH that has worked in this area is, of course, our new masking uh, protections, which are not respirators, and questions have arisen, do masks protect one from respiratory viruses? Another part of NIOSH, the Health Effects Laboratory Division, has uh, conducted uh, a number of research projects looking at the mask from both source control, how well does it protect the, the uh, individual who has the mask on from the respiratory jet, if you will, of expelling particles, and then how well does it protect the wearer themselves, sort of personal protection. Mm -hmm. And so uh, the Health Effects Laboratory uh, Division in Morgantown, West Virginia, uh, has done research in that area. The rest of NIOSH, we've been like everybody else in every other workplace trying to figure out how we do our work. For Folks that do field investigations, that has been really hard because we can't travel. And oftentimes the workplaces that we would have studied are not active. Uh, for our laboratorians that work in laboratories at NIOSH, with the exception of some of our uh, research that's been going on in, uh, in face coverings, those folks have had to uh, stop the research, and only recently we've been able to, through vaccination of our own workforce, to be able to get some of that restarted. So a lot of NIOSH work uh, has paused the uh, past 15 months. So, Dr. Howard, you went into a lot of um, details with that, which is fascinating, I think, as we learn exactly how an event, a, a, a pandemic like this even impacts your work. and. Maybe you know we can. I'd and I'd love to go into more detail on more of those points. But 
How about we begin with an introduction to NIOSH for our listeners? So what does NIOSH do? Because I think you touched on those uh, in what you just said, and it would help a lot to understand the full role the agency plays in people's lives. You know, it's our 50th year. We are engaged in our 50th year anniversary. Our Happy birth. 50th. That's right. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> our birth was in the Occupational Safety and Health Act of 1970. Mm-hmm. And that act is the, the statutory beginning of NIOSH. It's the act in which NIOSH was established. And the framers uh, that worked on that act decided that the regulators, the enforcers, uh, the standard setters should be in the Department of Labor, but that the science that supported standard setting should come from the Department of Health and Human Services so that they would be independent. Scientists Mm -hmm. would be independent to be able to offer independent views on the science to the Department of Labor. The framers thought that being in the same department, the Department Mm -hmm. of Labor, that the scientists would be buffeted, if you will, by political winds that seem to happen more uh, when regulation is the issue. As you know, uh, certain political Uh, aspects of regulation are pro or con. Uh, So we are then in the Department of Health and Human Services, and our job is to generate new knowledge in the field of occupational safety and health through science, and then be able to transfer that knowledge into practice, whether it be in papers, scientific papers we write, or recommendations that we make to employers, to safety and health practitioners. It's also our responsibility to educate the safety and health workforce of tomorrow. So we fund grants for students in industrial hygiene, safety engineering, occupational medicine, occupational nursing, occupational industrial psychology, That is another aspect of NIOSH's work. So in the Department of Health and Human Services, we are in the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, Mm -hmm. which is one of the 12 operating divisions of the Department of Health and Human Services. Our role in CDC, as I mentioned, usually it's not as close as it is right now, this past year and this year because of the pandemic. We do not deal with that much in the way of infectious diseases as much as CDC does. Uh, CDC, obviously, everybody knows are the disease detectives that track down all of the issues related to infectious disease, whether it be Ebola in Africa or uh, SARS coronavirus 1, SARS coronavirus 2. NIOSH doesn't usually get involved in those kinds of areas. But now the pandemic is all hands on deck. And because the pandemic affects the workplace, not only the workplace in which there are just employees or workers, like a manufacturing setting, but it also involves workplaces that are mixed. So it has workers and customers, non-workers in that workplace. Well, how do you best protect the worker when you have folks coming into that workplace that may be currently today unvaccinated. So that's a hybrid workplace, like a restaurant or a bar, a salon, a health club, a gym. The advice that we give has to be very specific to the industry sector. Uh, and that, that takes a while to think through. 
you really laid out the structure, I think, of NIOSH, and that helps to even get that distinction between the two places that regulatory bodies are housed in and NIOSH is housed in, because it's really, it's a way to keep the science separate from, um, from, from decision-making. So I think you also hit on a lot of the questions going forward. And, you know, I'd like to kind of return to this as we, as we move along this, um, this interview. Let me start off with, you talked about the distinction between regulatory bodies and NIOSH. So OSHA is the Occupational Safety and Health Administration, and NIOSH, of course, is the National Institutes for Occupational Safety and Health. And you are housed separately, uh, but, but how do you come together? How are you related? You're right. We are in two different cabinet level uh, departments. Uh, OSHA is in the Department of Labor and we're in the Department of Health and Human Services. But that doesn't matter to us. Uh, we are in constant communication with OSHA uh, project-wise. If they undertake a standard setting, for instance, like they did recently for silica, our <laughs> science informed their standard on silica, uh, meeting staff to staff, manager to manager, uh, OSHA administrator to NIOSH director, all of those interactions do not matter in terms of us being in two different departments. We are, as I po always point out, we are joined at the statute. Uh, mm -hmm. and that makes us very close collaborative partners, uh, regardless of whether we're in two different departments. Right. And, um, and in trying to understand how uh, decision making on a regulatory basis and research and science are separate, how do those, how does NIOSH, I guess another way to think of it is how does NIOSH influence policymaking and rulemaking? A great question. Uh, we do that primarily by offering recommendations. Mm -hmm. Usually uh, they can be qualitative or they can be quantitative. We can actually recommend that OSHA adopt what OSHA calls a permissible exposure limit or a legal limit of exposure that workers should not be exposed above. We can say, we think your PEL or your personal exposure limit for silica should be X, Y, or Z. And indeed, uh, for silica, we did that 42 years ago. And it took OSHA 42 years to do a silica standard. So just because we offer a recommendation doesn't mean right. that OSHA is going to run out and do it. And I think that's one of the issues that has bothered people a lot, is that uh, OSHA doesn't take up uh, every single one of our recommendations. And they have their own timeline for these things. Right. And OSHA rulemaking is a very complex process, even if when they decide to do a rule. So our job is to continue to generate the science, publish the papers, produce the recommendations. And OSHA isn't our only uh, customer, so to speak. Uh, there are states, uh, as you know, there are, there are 26 states that are federal and 22 that aren't. Some of those state uh, OSHA plans will, will look at NIOSH recommendations and do their own uh, standard on the issue. Safety and health uh, associations like the American Industrial Hygiene Association pays mm -hmm. close attention to the science that we generate. So we have a lot of customers. OSHA isn't the only one. So I tell people not to feel bad for us because OSHA may only do a standard every 10 years uh, <laughs> and they may not take up all of our recommendations immediately, but many others do. And in fact, I would point out internationally, that's true. NIOSH is one of 
one of a, a, a set of national occupational safety and health research institutes, uh, many in, in Western Europe, in, in France, in Italy, in the UK, mm-hmm. in Sweden, uh, in Asia, uh, in China, Japan, uh, in Vietnam, for instance, that, that look very carefully at the NIOSH science and often right. will take up the NIOSH scientists, uh, science also. So we have many customers uh, internationally speaking. So it's really setting the standard for multiple agencies across the world and here. Yes, exactly. Right. Exactly. Thank you. That is, that's really helpful to know that because I think we don't really think of all of the different aspects of it and somebody on the outside, it really, um, it really paints a pretty detailed picture of how NIOSH works and all of the different impacts it has. And I will come to that um, in, a, in a separate question, but um, in the meantime, let's say, you know, looking back at NIOSH's history, what would you say are some highlights that the agency is especially proud of? Well, there are so many of those highlights. It would be hard to summarize them uh, uh, quickly and in any order. And I'm sure people would disagree with me who have worked at NIOSH over the last 50 years and are very proud of the activities uh, that that they have accomplished. But I do think that uh, in the early days of NIOSH in in the 70s, for instance, Uh, NIOSH spent quite a bit of time creating criteria documents, which were formal science papers, if you will, uh, quite uh, detailed on particular chemicals or or physical agents like asbestos. And those papers influenced OSHA's uh, early standard setting in the 70s and 80s. And that was really the heyday of OSHA standard setting. And I think that's when the uh, Occupational Safety and Health Act, as they envisioned it when they wrote it in 1970, actually came to fruition, where NIOSH would develop the science, develop a recommendation, OSHA would take that and do a standard. I think as the 80s and 90s developed, there probably was some diminution of that original kind of exchange where NIOSH would continue to uh, work on various projects, but they were, are largely separate. OSHA may not have taken up uh, very many issues. And sometimes OSHA would, but were not successful. And I think the ergonomics research that NIOSH did and continues to do on the issue of musculoskeletal disorders uh, with the issue of, uh, of force posture, et cetera, in in the workplace, ergonomically speaking, resulted in a standard that OSHA did do, but it was struck down by the Congress, uh, so it was unsuccessful. It didn't stop NIOSH from continuing its research in musculoskeletal disorders. In fact, we're still doing that, and one of the things we're doing now in, in here in 2021, as opposed to 1970, with MSDs or 1990 with MSDs as OSHA did the standard, 2002 was their standard that was revoked. We're looking at exoskeletons right now. As you know, they are apparatus that are strapped to the human body. And we're looking at whether the apparatus itself, which is touted to prevent musculoskeletal disorders by amplifying the movements chiefly the shoulders uh, and the lifting uh, capability of human being, whether they are causing new 
uh, MSDs that we did not know about. So as technology proceeds, NIOSH studies it, uh, and we have a significant uh, amount of research in areas of robotics uh, and other uh, technologies that we're beginning to see in the workplace. So again, even though we all know that it would be fairly rare and probably unlikely for OSHA to do a robotic standard or an exoskeleton standard uh, or a standard in some of these new areas in the future of work, like nanotechnology, for instance, that doesn't stop NIOSH from continuing to do research in that area because our output is a scientifically based recommendation for safety and health regardless of whether OSHA does a national mandatory standard. So it's in the evidence and it's, it's the, the recommendations are based on evidence, but I imagine there would be, um, it sounds like on the application of those recommendations that OSHA would have extra considerations in mind that would prevent them from um, potentially implementing all of those recommendations into standards, so. Sure, as I say, OSHA standard setting is very complex, but other employers, let's say, that are in the advanced manufacturing area where nanomaterials are being used more and more, will pay close attention to NIOSH. And in fact, I'd like to mention at this time, if I could, that national mandatory standard setting isn't the only game in town. And in fact, private sector consensus bodies that create standards are very much alive, whether it be the International Standards Organization, ISO, ASTM, or others like ANSI, the American National Standards Institute. And NIOSH scientists participate in those consensus bodies to be able to develop occupational safety and health standards based on our science. So again, that's another output that then employers often use, they recognize it as important and use it in their workplaces, even though there may not be a traditional OSHA national mandatory standard. That's especially interesting. And um, it sounds like also from thinking of the pace of um, standards and thinking of, this, of the pace of research, it, you, you make a fair point that, you know, with OSHA may be slower in, in implementing, uh, developing standards around it and implementing those recommendations, but with the science, it's possible to move quicker and investigate issues that are emerging on a, on a day-to-day -day yes. basis. So, yes, I think, I think that's a good description. Uh, again, yeah. the framers thought that uh, NIOSH recommendations would always be taken up by OSHA. OSHA would always be doing a standard. But that really has not been, I think most people would agree, how we turned out uh, 50 years later. But it hasn't, again, stopped NIOSH from taking the science uh, and making recommendations for a wide array of customers to use. Exactly. And then, and there's nothing preventing organizations from wanting to take up on those recommendations and implementing those anyway. So 
that that's very interesting to to know. So moving on, you led NIOSH for several years now. So you first became director in 2002. That's just after the 9-11 attacks. And you led efforts to investigate um, the health impacts for a lot of the rescue workers. And, um, and we know that some of that work is continuing today. And now here we are, um, you know, in the midst of a pandemic and a whole new uh, bunch of worker well-being issues. So uh, look, looking back at uh, it's 50 years. So what are some of the critical drivers that have impacted um, your work and also the work at NIOSH, but also how does an institute like NIOSH respond to emerging situations like COVID, which uh, really have a global uh, impact? Well, it's a really great question. And I think we're looking back on 50 years. And I think originally what the framers of the Occupational Safety and Health Act, and certainly NIOSH through its earliest history, probably the 70s, the 80s, the 90s, it was primarily and exclusively a prevention research agency in safety and health. And that's what most people think of when they think of NIOSH. Oh, they do prevention research in occupational safety and health. And indeed, we do. We do a lot of that. And that is still a primary, but not exclusive, part of what NIOSH does. In 2000, for instance, the Energy Employees Occupational Illness Compensation Act was passed. And that act, uh, signed by President Clinton, gave compensation to atomic weapons workers workers who worked on uh, and continue to work in the nuclear arms uh, weapons field where ionizing radiation uh, is an issue. So when the Congress wanted to develop a program to uh, give compensation to those workers, the compensation program was housed in the Department of Labor. But one of the questions that the Department of Labor could not answer is, the issue that the Congress said they had to answer, which was, we're not going to give compensation to workers unless their work was more likely than not to result from, excuse me, their cancer was not more likely, was, was more likely than not to result from their work with ionizing radiation as an atomic weapons worker. So, DOL does not have that capability scientifically to make that determination, so that came to NIOSH. So we have a workers' compensation program in NIOSH as of 2000. Next, as you pointed out, came 9-11, and workers were affected by the cleanup process and their response work with a number of different carcinogens and chemicals that were involved. In fact, we've listed them in a document. There are about 267 of them. And they began to develop not immediate uh, illnesses, but more long-term illnesses. And Congress passed a health plan for them, the World Trade Center Health Program. Well, they looked around to see who would best be able to host that program. CDC does not have a patient-oriented, if you will, program. They are a public health agency. NASH did prevention research and a compensation program, but they said, no, NIOSH, we want you to take on being the 
the host of this health plan. So as of 2011, we now have, as you point out, the World Trade Center Health Program. It's a health plan, a federal health plan. We now have over 100,000 members. And the NIOSH director is the administrator of the World Trade Center Health Program. So yes, we still do old style prevention research uh, for the past, the present, and the future. But we also do workers' compensation, and we also do a health plan. That sounds all very fulfilling, because um, knowing how much goes into disaster management and, and figuring out how to even compensate and in a long-term manner, I think that, um, so that sounds really meaningful and fulfilling. Thank you for describing that. Um, you know, thinking more along those lines, I would imagine we were, we're probably going to have more and more of those issues. For example, sedentary behaviors. I mean, it's hard to really draw uh, a clear distinction right away for the amount of uh, musculoskeletal impact it can have, the psychosocial impact, but um, I want to get to that next. And so thinking more around um, changing needs for worker well-being um, and really what the future of work looks like. For example, uh, I'm doing this interview from my house and I imagine a lot of people are working from their home. And um, and as you mentioned, NIOSH has had to expand its focus from these traditional workplace exposures. And I certainly didn't know that uh, NIOSH hadn't looked for biological exposures, uh, hazardous exposures. And so, uh, so adding those layers of chemical, physical workplace hazards, biological workplace hazards, how would you begin to address complex issues like diversity, psychosocial stresses, equity, inclusion, and really work as um, a major determinant of health and well-being for people? Well, another great question, and I'd like to point out that NIOSH for over 25 years has done work in the psychosocial area. We have behavioral scientists that work at NIOSH. We're, we're not all chemists or epidemiologists. Uh, these are psychologists that specialize in the area of occupational psychology. And this has been an issue for us for quite a while, as has been chemical hazards, biologic hazards, uh, physical hazards. And recently, I think probably in the last 10 years, we began to look at combining these together because a worker can be exposed to these very tangible, let's say, chemical hazards, but they can also be exposed to organizational hazards, how a particular workplace is organized, supervision issues, how they're treated, as you point out, as a worker in terms of diversity and inclusion, and the mental stresses that are associated uh, with work, which can come in all sorts of different varieties and from all sorts of different inputs. And so, as you mentioned, this umbrella term of worker well-being encompasses both the physical and the psychosocial aspects. And it's a complex area. It's one that we like to refer to uh, and have created a program around called Total Worker Health, meaning let's not leave anything out that can influence whether or not a worker has worker well-being. We want to include everything because if you leave something out, you're not solving the whole picture for that worker in that workplace. And employers more and more have become very interested in this aspect of it. 
the social psychosocial issues. Uh, some people say, well, this is a touchy-feely thing. Well, it may be touchy-feely, but it's real nonetheless. And in fact, if you look at the World Health Organization's top 10 issues that we're going to be facing in the future for the workforce, depression and anxiety are right at the top of that. The issues that have been, I think, informing all of us that have been researched over the last 10 years, the presenteeism issue, actually being at the workplace but not really being present there because you're worried about this or that or the other thing. So I think the issue about total worker health is now creating a more holistic picture of the worker. Uh, the, the goal, as you mentioned, the outcome is worker well-being. We want to look at all the inputs that are impacting the worker from not only the traditional hazards that NIOSH has studied for many years, but also from the organizational hazards that are inherent in the organization that we're in and the type of work we're doing, including workers who don't necessarily have an organization like the, the contingent worker, so to speak, the worker that has a platform that they go to every day to connect with their uh, customers, uh, is still a worker, uh, despite the legal controversy in various states and various countries about whether they're independent contractors or workers. They're still working, uh, and they're still included. Uh, so I think the issue uh, that we've been able to use as a vehicle uh, for both research and service uh, and interventions is the vehicle of total worker health. Thank you. I'm really glad you brought up um, total worker health because it really gets at that crux of um, our work experience and also our non-work experiences, so to speak, and how really it impacts one person as the employee or the working person. And uh, one of the, as you mentioned, IOSH's program is total worker health. And as our listeners know, we um, at the Oregon Healthy Workforce Center are a total worker health center of excellence. And, and as part of this focus, we've been able to investigate and propose interventions that address some of those complex issues that not only directly affect people at work, like accidents and injuries on the job, but also work experiences that you take back with you, like how your supervisor um, treats you or whether you have a welcoming positive workplace culture and having job security, all of which can really have an effect on their well-being. Uh, but as you were speaking, one of the thing, one of the points that I that came up to mind was I imagine that these are eventually recommendations that we can uh, we can draw around. These are issues that was that could be amenable to recommendations, but I also wonder how much of this can get translated into standards from OSHA. So some of those complex issues, like, as you mentioned, the umbrella worker well-being term that encompasses not only injury, pain, illness, but also um, feeling feeling like you're included in the, in the work experience and how that translates to your, for your family and work-life balance and all of that. So that will be an interesting uh, next few years, I would imagine, as the, as the future of work evolves. You raise a very challenging issue. OSHA standard setting has been substance specific, if you will, topic specific. Narrowing down the issue is, is in where OSHA has done its primary standard setting. I really don't see OSHA as the vehicle that would be able to help influence other than uh, joining the, uh, the rest of us to, to uh, and OSHA has, in supporting the idea of total worker health, uh, but I don't see this as a standard setting issue. 
Now, there are some standard setting organizations, ASSP, that are working on a total worker health type consensus standard. Uh, it's going to be interesting to see how they come out uh, in threading that needle. But I don't see it as necessarily a standard setting issue. I think it's a way of practice, a, a, a way of looking at the workplace as a holism. Uh, and not splitting it up in, into uh, into various aspects that we've traditionally done. And I think we're seeing that in, in many, many different areas. One example I'll give you, which may be a very odd example, but as you know, there are uh, 17 states now that have legalized adult use of cannabis. Now, some of those states have said that uh, employers uh, cannot uh, uh, use uh, the, the laws to discriminate against workers who use cannabis outside the workplace. No state has uh, uh, condones uh, cannabis use at the workplace or a worker being impaired by cannabis. But this issue about a activity that occurs outside the workplace that may affect the worker coming to work, being at work, I think is an example of, of and there are many, many, many like that. Uh, the worries that you pointed out that a worker could have about the way that they're supervised creates anxiety both in their, in their, in their private life as well as their work life. And so there's an, sort of an endless list of these activities that um, I think we have to tackle. Um, and so that's just one example of some of these outside issues that impact the workplace. Workplace is a very unique, uh, very unique place. Uh, and, and workers bring their whole selves to work. They don't partition themselves and bring only a part of themselves to work. Absolutely. Yeah, and I think that's the not putting it into boxes that you can really control and say, this is how you should do this versus that. I think um, allows the freedom to really think globally about work and think kind of in integrated ways about the daily work experience and how we can really work to improving all of that to um, for whether it's safety, you know, isolated, like whether you're looking at wellness, but really looking at this whole picture of mental, physical well-being. So. That's really, really good point. Yes, I think you you hit the nail on the head when you're yeah. using words like integrated and holism. Uh, that's that's the new view, and I think it's going to be the future view. It's a much more complex job for safety and health professionals uh, to uh, to do that kind of research. And there are uh, total worker health centers like like your own that are trying to help us figure out how do you do that kind of research where you're not isolating a particular item, but you're looking at the totality. And hopefully you and, and other centers can, can help us uh, with regard to how we do that kind of research. Right, right. More to come in the, in the coming years, I'd say. How does NIOSH, you, you spoke to this a little bit in one of your previous points, but how does NIOSH respond to state level needs? So, for example, here in Oregon, agriculture is, is a big industry, as is forestry logging. And um, I imagine it will be challenging for one uh, federal agency to address regional needs across the country. 
Well, yes, it is. And and we conquer that problem by having um, agricultural safety and health research centers as we do total worker health centers uh, and education and research centers. So we have a lot of centers that we fund throughout the United States that are located in near, in all regions of the United States that are they're really excellently situated to understand regional and local issues. As you mentioned, Oregon agriculture is different than Iowa agriculture. So the two centers we have in that area, the two the centers we have in California and Minnesota and all throughout the United States, that's their job is to be able to look at those issues that are regionally important. Uh, and that's how we do it as a, as a national institute. Uh, we only have offices in eight different states, uh, but we have so many partners in these centers that we fund throughout the United States. Without them, we couldn't really accomplish some of the goals that the statute sets out for us. Thank you. That's really helpful, um, helpful to know. Okay, so moving along, um, you know, again, you, you seem to speak to all of my, uh, all of the questions in this in interview ahead of time, so, so thank you for that. But uh, I would like to return to this question about your target audience. So you t uh, obviously academic institutions um, seek funding from, from NIOSH like we do, we, uh, we conduct research on various uh, worker wellbeing issues. Policymakers are interested in NIOSH's recommendations you mentioned practitioners, you mentioned students and you know, academic programs that are for, for people that are going into training for occupational uh, safety and health practice. But I'm also thinking, what about, especially as gig work continues, especially as independent contract work continues, how does NIOSH um, move some of the research to impact individual uh, people directly? Oh, great question. I did want to amend your list of uh, of customers there just uh, because we forgot to uh, add to our list uh, labor unions uh, as customers and That's worker right. advocacy you. organizations like the uh, the committees on safety and health, the COSH committees that are throughout the United States. Those are also customers of ours uh, that relate to uh, to our science and recommendations. So we certainly don't want to leave them out of the list there. The, the, the issue that you're bringing up is the non-traditional or non-standard employment arrangement. But as I said, they're still workers. And we are studying that population too to understand what issues are affecting them uh, in, in their work. Uh, the non-standard work arrangement or the independent contractor arrangement, as some people would prefer to call them, is a challenging one because they do not have a traditional employer, nor are they covered by the safety net that was developed from the 1930s on, especially with regard to safety and health protections under uh, OSHA standards. But that doesn't mean that NIOSH can't look to see what are the issues associated? What are the injuries and illnesses associated with that? What kind of hazards are they exposed to? What kind of issues do we need to look at there? It's a tough group to study because we're not 100% sure who they are 
the Bureau of Labor Statistics has had trouble defining who they are and even counting them. We know, for some of you who may be familiar with that, it is challenging. But it, it is something that, uh, it, that they are part of the American workforce and increasingly uh, a, a larger part of the American workforce. So we can't leave out uh, those folks, just like we have not left out temporary workers. As you know, uh, Russell Kelly, right after World War II, uh, decided to put a company together called Kelly Girls uh, to provide administrative uh, office support work, primarily for women who had been displaced from the factory during World War II, where they had worked, and they enjoy working and getting out of the home, and they wanted to continue. So Russell Kelly began hiring them. Well, now they're called Kelly Services, and they're a gigantic company that provides temporary workers. So we have, we have workers that have two employers, the agency that sends them out and the host employer that actually has them in their workplace. And they have specialized hazards, especially with regard to their newness often in a workplace. We've looked at that issue, it's been studied. The issue about their reticence to be able to bring a safety and health issue to the attention of the employer because they're there for one day or two days and they're going to be out if they start complaining about safety. So there's a lot of issues associated with temporary work that we've been studying probably since the 90s. Well, this, this gig work, as you have brought up, is just the newest sort of angle on American employment. But they're still workers and we need to study their hazards. And looking at other populations, as we look at worker well-being, is is underrepresented groups that you know in in the larger um, whether it's science and investigations and even in rulemaking, and uh, where a lot of groups aren't able to uh, groups from diverse occupational groups or BIPOC communities, for example, some of the science and some of the recommendations that come out. How much do they include experiences of, um, say, farm workers or migrant worker communities? And, and does, I imagine there are always challenges to get to, to, all, to address all of those levels. Well, certainly without a, a traditional employment situation, without, let's say, being represented by a union, these types of workers are harder to get to. Uh, oftentimes migrant workers, we, obviously because of the name, they migrate um, sometimes from one country to the other country in various agricultural flows. So these are all challenges. Uh, to studying hazards associated with various workers, but you know that's that's our job, uh, and we and researchers um, have to figure out ways to reach those workers. And our agriculture centers have done a great job uh, looking at migrant farm work. Our agricultural center at UC Davis, for instance, has really excelled at looking at migrant farm uh, hazards uh, associated with their work. Great, thank you. So, Dr. Howard, in thinking about all of the events from this past year between the pandemic and race-related unrest, how does NIOSH address issues around racial justice and health equity from a worker safety and well-being perspective? Is NIOSH able to respond to those issues? Well, yes, and, and I would say NIOSH has responded to those issues for 50 years. And the reason why I say that is because okay. vulnerable workers, workers who have a higher let's say, incidents of injury and illness often are the most socially, socioeconomically disadvantaged of the population. 
whether they be black or Latinos or other people of color or other socioeconomic classes, because you, as you know, new entrants, foreign entrants to the United States frequently take the worst jobs, i.e. the most hazardous jobs. And that seems to be true in every country, and it's certainly true in the United States. So NIOSH has always focused on that group because they are the ones with the highest levels of injury and illness. Recently, I think uh, you refer to issues that have happened in the last year or two. Uh, NIOSH is part of CDC's health equity initiative uh, in which we're looking across populations to be able to focus more on some of these health equity issues as we're facing now with uh, vaccination for COVID-19. We find that the diminution in the number of Blacks and Hispanics, for instance, uh, that are getting vaccine is less than their proportion in the population. Whereas if you look at Caucasians, the, the number of Caucasians that have got vaccinated is overrepresented. Uh, in terms of the population. So we have a lot of work to do to bring the vaccine, if you will, and the administration has just uh, decided to sort of change their way of doing vaccination to, to, to create mobile units that bring the vaccine, maybe to construction sites, maybe to neighborhoods uh, that are more disadvantaged socioeconomically. So I think NIOSH has always had an interest in that category of workers because that's where the injuries are occurring except now we can expand it and put it part of a larger federal government health equity initiative. Thank you. That's, that is actually very helpful. So I wanna go back and address, um, address when you, this point about research to practice a little bit more. So NIOSH has the translation research program or, and then also the R2P program. Can you tell us more about these? Well, you know, they grew out of probably 20 years ago when it became obvious and everybody knew it ahead of time. It, it wasn't like it was a big secret. Scientists, people with PhDs and advanced degrees and researchers, they are used to publishing a paper in an academic journal. And as you know, being at a university, uh, your whole appraisal system is oriented around how many papers did you publish and how many citations did that paper have and all that sort of thing. Well, okay, fine. That may be super for academic centers, but for a taxpayer-supported institute that's supposed to be uh, delivering product to all these customers that we've been talking about for the last hour, that doesn't really work so well because nobody's reading the those journals, uh, even though they're fine journals. <laughs> and indeed, all of us scientists may read them, but but not everybody reads them. And then we have the translation problem. Even if you do read the article, if you're not in that field, you may not understand what the heck it's saying or how to apply it. So this issue of of moving the research to practice, or R2P, became a very big issue about 20 years ago. And we've spent quite a bit of time saying, look, sure, it's great to get that paper in the research uh, journal, but then you have an obligation to translate that and apply it so somebody could, can apply it easily that doesn't understand all the intricacies of your research into their practice, whether it's a safety health practitioner or a worker, an employer, whatever. So that idea of, of moving research into practice involves some translation ability. And that's where 
our R2P program is oriented is to bring more of those findings from the fancy science into plain English and being able to be applied in the workplace by people that don't necessarily want to read all those fancy journals. I love that you said that. Translate the fancy science into into basic <laughs> plain English, because that is exactly uh, a huge challenge with academia. And um, you know, we do the work we do, and it is so incredibly important to publish them in peer-reviewed journals. Yeah. But and I'm really happy to to note that. You know, even in in new center in, in in our new work these days, especially with the the total worker health centers, also dissemination and science communication is such an important piece because ultimately exactly. the your information is only as useful as it gets to the target audience. And so, exactly. uh, I'm, I'm really exactly. happy. And, and I want to point out one example that CDC has recently done. If you read MMWR, which is the Morbidity Mortality Weekly Report CDC puts out. They now put a little box in each of those articles that summarizes why is this article important, et cetera. It's a very small box. It may have 100 words. And I find myself going to that box on a regular basis just for timing issue. And then if it's really something that I need from that box, uh, I will go back and read the article. But we're all moving in that direction is being able to quickly communicate the findings two people and i think your example uh, at your university of having that folk having folks that are into the science of communication you know we thought okay communication is you publish the paper you write a little something but the science of communication is much more complex than that and we need specialists in that area to help other scientists figure out how do you communicate well. And I know at NIOSH, we have those folks that are in charge of translation uh, uh, to be able to translate the science uh, into uh, workable uh, solutions that people can apply. And, but, and that would be incredibly important, I think, moving even further when, when people like contract workers or independent workers, non people in non-traditional work look to NIOSH for information on how they can navigate the work experience for themselves without having the support of organizations or having a, a mandated rule to follow. So that that is incredibly useful, that translation piece. Right. And, and I would tag on to that. I think you really uh, made a very important point. Uh, that particular kind of workforce is now uh, being experimented with, if you will. There are certain tech platforms, uh, like Uber, for instance, that are looking at, uh, and Senator Warner, of uh, the senior senator from has posed legislation on this issue, making a lot of the safety net benefits, like workers' compensation, health insurance, portable, so that they go with the worker. Well, the same sort of thing we can imagine having that health and safety knowledge become portable with those workers. We've got to figure out a vehicle by which we can use to give to those workers and a way to give it to them. But we've got to figure out, okay, you're a, a task rabbit uh, gig worker. So what do you need to know uh, about uh, going into homes? like we teach home health aides about security issues, et cetera. 
So I think that this is the new world uh, of, of workplace, uh, part of the new world of workplace that is quite exciting for researchers uh, in universities like yours that are going to have to push our boundaries and be able to figure out how to do this. That is for sure. And I imagine we'll be, um, with how quickly and how much work is evolving, I imagine we'd have to push a lot of boundaries <laughs> at, a, yes. at a pretty quick uh, pace as well. So great point. I think of closing out and as we do, I'll ask what's next for NIOSH? What do you hope the agency will be celebrating at its hundredth? <laughs> well, first of all, it's been a pleasure for me to talk to you. It's been a pleasure for me to, to talk to you about NIOSH's work uh, and to celebrate our, our first 50 years. Uh, I think the second 50 years of NIOSH uh, will probably be uh, as unrecognizable now as somebody who worked in 1970 looks at NIOSH now and thinks, wow, that's not the NIOSH I worked for. Uh, but we have to be responsive because the world of work changes, and that's what we're tied to. So we have to be nimble, we have to be scientifically creative, and we have to be able to communicate uh, health and safety messaging uh, in a way that everybody can understand us. It's a great note to end on. Dr. Howard, this has been wonderful. Thank you so much. Thank you. We look forward Thank to you. many. <laughs> we look forward to so many more years of research and impact and for worker well-being. And someday, you know, somebody will be interviewing some from NIOSH on the on its hundredth, and it'll right. be fascinating. <laughs> it will be fascinating. So, on behalf of the Oregon Institute of Occupational Health Sciences and the Oregon Healthy Workforce Center and NIOSH Total Worker Health Center of Excellence, we wanted to congratulate NIOSH for their dedication and hard work the last five decades of service and its evolution to recognize the importance of improving safety, health, and well-being in the workplace. In the show notes, we'll provide some ways to stay connected with NIOSH and celebrate their 50th anniversary milestone. Thanks for listening. Do you have an idea for a podcast episode? Well, we want to hear from you on important workplace issues that you would like to discuss. Email us at occhealthsci at ohsu.edu. That's O-C-C-H-E-A-L-T-H-S-C-I at ohsu.edu. Subscribe to the Oregon in the Workplace blog or follow us on our social media channels on either Facebook or Twitter to stay updated on current research, resources, news, and community events.